Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains, the curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us Rusty Reno again today, the boss. He's here again to discuss matters raised in the current public square, his monthly commentary in the magazine. Welcome, Rusty. Hey, great to be with you, Mark. All right, well, your opening remarks in this issue of the public square recount, recount a few Uplifting episodes in church during your travels. What did you see? It was in the spring. It was May and June. It was uh, kind of weird. I, I was really on the road. I was out of town, I think, four Sundays in a row. And uh, the first one, I'm in Lancaster, Pennsylvania for a wedding. Wonderful occasion. And, you know, you kind of pick a church to go to on Sunday morning on the basis of, you know, time. And I just went into, stumbled into, I think it's St. Patrick's church in Lancaster, and lo and behold, there's this very serious, biblically rich sermon on the biblical roots of the Feast of Pentecost, and the theological meaning of of Pentecost. And, you know, 25 minutes, you know, and I think, whoa. Now, of course, the priest was African, so I kind of mark it in the box of, Oh well, you know Africans they take the Bible more seriously, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but still, you know, I thought, well, wow, wow, good sermon, serious, you know, real substance. So the next weekend, I'm in Mill Valley, California, and because they're for a bar mitzvah across the bay in Berkeley, and same thing, you go online, you find some sort of church that's nearby, convenient time. And I go to this church in Tiburon. Have you been to Tiburon? Uh, been up there, yeah. Yeah, sure, sure. You know, uh, Marin County, this is just north of San Francisco. It is a super wealthy part of the world. And Tiburon is, it's the, it's the sort of creme de la creme, the wealthy of the wealthy. And, 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 they, know, went, and they went very, very heavily for, for Donald Trump, right? <laughs> exactly right <laughs> and these are the kinds of places where you know Catholicism after Vatican II it became complacent hollowed out and then eventually moribund and so I went I didn't have very high expectations yeah. contemporary praise music that was what the website said oh yeah I'm thinking oh boy okay but it's the time I need 
da 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 da. Well, so I go to church, and first thing, the musicians are really good, and so it's even though it's not my style, I I, I couldn't help but feel that I was in a church where people were using really significant talents to praise and worship God. And and that was like, whoa, wow, this is for real. And then sermon, PowerPoint sermon. You know, I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be terrible. Well, lo and behold, it's another 25-minute sermon. It must have been 30 biblical quotes, you know, projected up on the PowerPoint screen, of course. And the basic message of the sermon was that the greatest legacy you can leave your children is faith and loyalty to the church. Whoa! Effectively saying that our mission as Christians is to be pass on the faith, to be missionaries. And, you know, I left thinking, wow, this guy, this priest, is really trying to get these people focused on core truths of the faith. And so, hmm, uh, you know, not an African priest, but, you know, a, you know, Anglo-American. And so that was something. And then next weekend, I'm in Colorado Springs, same thing. Got to shoehorn a mass while I'm traveling. Go to this church in Colorado Springs, young priest, fiery sermon that could have competed, could have competed well with your based, your local Baptist preacher uh, that emphasized the church militant, which is not something I've heard in sermons <laughs> hardly ever. So I, I just, you know, when I was writing, you know, thinking about writing the column for this issue, I thought, wow, something is happening. You know, there's something stirring in the church. People talk about polarization, and they typically talk about polarization as a as a bad thing, and certainly. You know, it, it it can be very destabilizing to our society. But polarization also means that people move off, if you will, that indecisive, muddy middle. And spiritually, this might not actually be such a bad thing. When people wake up and go, no, wait a minute. Um, I'm not satisfied anymore with these half measures. I actually believe this stuff. And they go more, they go deeper and they... They take their faith more seriously. So I feel like you know, maybe I was experiencing a little of that. And also, I do think that the pandemic, the lockdowns, the, the cessation of normal life also accelerated this trend, perhaps. Um, so so I, it could be that, that we are moving into a situation in, in in the church and Christianity more broadly, where we might see actually renewal rather than diminution. Is uh, so yeah, you 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 do tend to want to see that this as a trend of some kind. Do you see along with the uh, the more the greater exertion in in the mass in in, in the in the sermons, do you see uh, a hunger on the part of the people in the pews? They like this. I, you know, I uh, mean, the Colorado Springs Church was full. You know, the one in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and Tiburon was half full. Um, 
So, you know, you don't want to necessarily measure everything in numbers, although um, a young friend of mine who's a priest in, in the greater Boston area is a chaplain at one of the big universities there. He reports a, a significant uptick in student attendance to Mass post-pandemic, and he's compared notes with other colleagues, and they've reported the same thing at other universities. So I guess what I'm saying here is that the demise of Christendom means that the default to Christianity is gone. People don't just presume, well, if you're a good person, then you go to church and so forth. That's actually been probably pretty much um, evaporated in the last couple decades anyway. So it, so it could be the case that fewer people overall identify as Christian in America, but those who do identify may wind up being more ardent, more committed, more faithful. I guess it goes back to what Pope Benedict said back as he, as Cardinal Ratzinger, gosh, or not even Cardinal Ratzinger, I think he was, uh, was shortly after the Second Vatican Council, when he predicted that the future of the church was to be a smaller and more faithful church. So perhaps I was experiencing something of a fulfillment of that prophecy. Your next entry turns to a book. You spent a lot of time discussing it. It's, it's entitled Seven Ranges, Ground Zero for the Staging of America. Why this book? It's funny, you know, some books, they come into your hands for inexplicable reasons. I, I don't know how I wound up getting a hold of this book. I know the author, Will Hoyt. I mean, I don't know him well, but I've met him. He, uh, I met him at a conference in Steubenville recently. And, you know, he's a, a wonderful, warm, intelligent, thoughtful guy, not an academic. In fact, a, a, a person who's made a living um, building houses and so forth. So a workman, a, a craftsman. Um, but it was obviously a person thought, thoughtful, knew his way around books. And so I, when I saw this book, I said, huh, I just picked it up and started reading it. And wow, I was just really swept up by, the, by the, both the beauty of his writing and the humanity of his writing. It's a person that really um, describes and engages in the reality of our society in a very generous, but also sober-minded, clear-thinking way. He certainly doesn't pull any punches in terms of how degraded our society is. And I would probably, and I think his thesis in the book is that America's always been a, a, a crazy place, prone to these unstable extremes, you know, spiritualism and carnality, uh, you know, civilization versus wilderness, uh, these kind of false antinomies or dichotomies, or self-invention, you know, versus settlement and, and um, continuity of, of tradition. So he just, he, he pulled me in. He pulled me in with his sort of opening description of being a uh, uh, a, a carpenter in Berkeley, California, hiking in the Sierra Nevada mountains, and and uh, you know all of these experiences that I've actually I, I worked as a carpenter after college, and I've certainly spent a lot of time in the vast tracts of the Sierra Nevada wilderness. Why does he leave California? Yeah, well, he, I mean, the, the, the antinomy or the dichotomy that, that 
that gets the book going is between civilization and and wilderness. Uh, you know, there's a there's a way in which and it's very American. You know, we have our workaday life, our suburban existence, our 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 our, our everyday, and we we go to the to nature for renewal and refreshment. Um, and I think that what Hoyt, the author Will Hoyt, sees is that instead of humanizing, if you will, our our American civilization, we seek to escape it and gain relief. <laughs> and boy, you're a California, Mark. You know how alluring the natural landscape is in California and seductive, really, it is. It's a special place. And yeah, it is a special place. And there's a kind of promise in the sublime beauty of nature that it can heal us of our self-inflicted wounds. And and so it, it can it can lead to a, a neglect of um if you will neighborhood uh or city in order and you know we just sort of toggle back and forth between the cold artificiality of bourgeois life and the authenticity and freedom of nature um you know people like Jack Kerouac kind of specialized in that Dharma Bums is an instance of that um, that book. I think it's not his best book by any stretch. I think On the Road, I think it's a, it's a genuine minor classic. Dharma Bums is kind of a dumb and self-indulgent book. So he leaves California, and he goes to a place that doesn't quite have the sublimity, does it? No, it doesn't. He gives a great description. So here he comes to these realizations that it's kind of come to a, I guess, both an intellectual and a spiritual dead end because he, you know, California, like I say, the seductions of California are strong. And so he's casting about where, where's a place that, where, where, where's a place where it's a, where it's a, a place that encourages, if you will, us to humanize rather than to escape. And you know, he goes to Maine and Vermont, New Hampshire, and I can't remember exactly why, but he winds up visiting this place in southeastern Ohio, uh, near Steubenville, Ohio, um, and in, in I think it's Harrison County, Ohio, north of Cadiz. He buys a little small, smallish plot of land, and moves his family from Berkeley, California, to uh, rural uh, Ohio, and. And he didn't kind of know what he really was getting into. And this, as he discovers fairly rapidly, and the book is really a story of this, of the many discoveries he makes while he's living there, he, he discovers that it's, in many ways, it's, as he calls it, ground zero for the staging of America, the subtitle of the book, that some of the most powerful trends in our society have their origins in this part of the country. It's the first frontier after independence. So the name of the book, Seven Ranges, it's kind of enigmatic. The Seven Mountain Ranges? Wait a minute, there are no mountain ranges in Ohio. <laughs> but it refers to uh, a surveying terminology, range and section. And this is the part of America that was the first part to be surveyed in the grid pattern that overlays the entire country uh, west of the Appalachian Mountains, with the exception of uh, Kentucky and Tennessee, which 
which were settled before uh, um, the, uh, the, I mean, the Revolutionary War, the beginnings, the first beginnings of settlement through the Cumberland Gap and so forth. And so this grid pattern, which anybody who flies across the country looking down out of the airplane sees immediately, it runs from the Ohio River all the way to the Pacific uh, Ocean. And it's a, it, it, it epitomizes for uh, Hoyt, it epitomizes this tension in the American soul. So it is a technology of plotting or platting land that is extremely efficient for the buying and selling of land because there's very little ambiguity as to where the boundaries are. Um, so you could be an investor in New York and you can buy uh, cropland in Iowa by section and quarter section. And you, you pretty much, you know what you're getting. You don't have to, you don't have to hire someone to, to resurvey it. So it's a very, it's very efficient. And of course, that's part of our dynamism as a country. And it, it reached its high watermark in the Homestead Act, where you know you every anybody could get 180 acres a, qu- a quarter section, 168 acres. 160, quarter, I think. Okay. Yeah, 160 and a quarter section. If you settled it and you farmed it, uh, then it was yours for free. And so this was a great. It's part of the you know the, the dynamism of our country rests in this technology of surveying and laying out land. But at the same time, it's kind of a curse because it encourages us to treat the place we live as a commodity. And we are, we, we, as Hoyt, I think, intimates or suggests that, yes, we want to own the land that we live on, right, rather than being tenants. Uh, but on the other hand, we would like to be owned by the place where we live. That is to say that it has our loyalty, that we feel that we owe it something. I mean, human beings want both those aspects. We, and I think it's an emblem of this tension between, very strong tension in the American character, between solidarity and freedom, uh, between a sense of duty to our country and to our fellow man, and a desire to just kick the dust off of our feet and hightail it out of here and you know make our own future by ourselves. And and that, that kind of wild tension between those two things just runs through the book as he, he rings the changes on this this tension. He talks about the Cane Ridge uh, revival, the Second Great Awakening, and this tension between carnality and spirituality. Um, you know the you know we are on the one hand this materialistic country, you know, completely devoted to getting and getting and getting. And the other hand, we're this country of sort of profligate uh, uh, sacrifices and, you know, most charitable people, country in the world in terms of charitable giving. And so it's this, these wild dichotomies that are very destabilizing that I think I find it very persuasive, actually, to describe the American character. Let's pause for a moment for what I believe is one of the best schools of higher learning in the country, the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in Texas. With campuses in Irving, Texas, and Rome, Italy, UD offers a rigorous and exciting core curriculum that sets it apart, an education rooted in the great works of Catholic and Western tradition, an education that ennobles and enables students in their pursuit of wisdom, truth, and virtue. Fidelity to man requires fidelity to the truth, which alone is the guarantee of freedom and of the possibility of integral human development. Those are the words of Pope Benedict. 
quoted at the University of Dallas and guiding educators in all the departments of the university. Undergraduate, graduate, and certificate programs are available. Start your college odyssey at the University of Dallas today. Go to udallas.edu to learn more. Does he spend a lot of time contrasting that, that old pioneering settling time with the, use, use the term, post-industrial ruin that he sees around him? Well, see, that's kind of, that's the most obvious thing when you go to that part of America, is it's a post-industrial wasteland. So it was the supernova of uh, industrialization that burned bright and, 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 and powerfully for 100 years, really. You know, when Andrew Carnegie built the first steel mills in in Pittsburgh after the Civil War, all the way until the 1970s. And then there was a period, even though the steel industry began to decline, uh, there was a period, this huge upsurge in the coal industry in the late 20th century. And that was a time when that part of Ohio was strip mined. And so there's tremendous ecological degradation as a result result of this explosive industrial growth. And again, I think this this is part of, it's not just an American thing, but I think it's the West broadly, of course, but the United States, typically we have it in the most extreme forms. Um, you know, it's gain and loss. And, uh, you know, and the thing about Hoyt is he's not a kind of uh, anti-modern, anti-industrial age guy, but he wants us to sort of face this these, these kinds of... Um, uh, powerful dichotomies. You, you can't have one without the, out the other in a certain sense. And so how do, we, how do we try to moderate these extremes? Rusty, you use the phrase labor of reclamation in the public square. What do you mean by that? The book, the book ends with this very beautiful parable as he goes to this postage stamp-sized you know, state forest Harrison State Forest, I think, or something like that, and hikes the trails. And it's a kind of reverie where the memories of the California wilderness flood back uh, in as he's, as he's, and there's a kind of incongruity there, you know, it couldn't possibly be as good or, or what have you. But uh, it is a parable. It's a parable about renewal. And, you know, we're going to have to rebuild our country on the basis of on the basis of what we have and what we have is degraded um, often I talk to conservatives who to be frank are, are are I think overly pessimistic and they they say well you know uh, the only people who can sustain a democracy are people capable of self-government you know so many Americans are they, their personal lives are a mess you know, they're addicted to pornography, they're, they take drugs, they can't pass drug tests to get jobs, and, you know, the list goes on and on. Or they're, they're smitten by woke ideology and so on and so forth. And, you know, I don't want to dispute the degradation, the scope of it. But I think Hoyt's book is important because he insists that we can, in fact, undertake a project of reclamation uh, that however imperfect and however far it might be from the ideal actually is, allows us to uh, 
to restore and make our country habitable. In the book, does Hoyt uh, encounter people in the area? Does he offer profiles of them? And maybe I'll extend this question, Rusty. You've traveled a lot in those areas. You, you meet people, you mingle. Are, do you find the people there eager for this kind of reclamation, is this some, some sort of recovery? Are they ready for it? Are they ready to be? If they're not fully equipped themselves for it, are they, are they waiting for someone to help them out? Uh, I mean, you know, again, yes and no. I mean, that's the beauty of the book is this, there's no Pollyannish, you know, the people are waiting. Um, but, but, you know, uh, the spine of the book or, or the, the thing that kind of links the chapters is an account of his travel up the Ohio River on uh, a barge um, that uh, the, the being pushed by the O.C. Clark I mean, it's a whole series of barges. It's you know, um, uh, the, the, I've been, I've traveled them. I mean, I've driven along the high road. It's these huge, you know, like thirty barges all linked together, being pushed upriver by a boat. And I think the reason he does that is because you know these are people who are capable and competent and are able to manage, which is kind of seems like an extraordinary task. To you know, it's not, it's not the widest, it's not the ocean. I mean, you got to keep these, these extraordinary. Um, uh, you know this this great mass of coal barges all together and not bump into things, and so we do have a country where people can actually get things done and they can accomplish complex tasks, and and they're ordinary people. They're not they're not you know world beating road scholars, right? And so this gives us a sense that we do actually have fellow citizens who, with the right sort of leadership and you know aimed in the right direction, can do things reasonably well. I mean, we can, I think, with the right leadership, run our country reasonably well. Um, you know, God willing, we could actually reform our schools so they could function reasonably well, although that's a that's a bit of a dream. Although right now, ordinary people are running for boards of education and pushing back against critical race theory. And so there is a, um, uh, there's a lot of ruin uh, but there's always a lot of ruin in the nation, and uh, uh, but there's also all kinds of um, there's a, there are capabilities and 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 assets that can be deployed to not to create a utopia. That's part of I think the argument of the book is that the typical American spirit is either despairing of our corrupt nation or engaged in some sort of utopian project to make to perfect humanity. When, when, when indeed the, the thing, the task before us is, is to make things at least a little bit better, um, or as, as as best as we can, given the limitations of the human condition and limitations of our own particular uh, country. Yeah, I've never thought it was realistic for people would get they would, they, you know, uh, raging against our our you know, banal mass culture and our, our, you know, a lack of civilizational depth, you know, as compared to somebody from France or whatever. And to which I just have to shrug and say, well, okay, that's our country. <laughs> yeah, 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 those criticisms are correct, but, you know, there's some good qualities too, you know. Yeah. Now, you, you singled out this book. You spent a lot of time talking about it. You put it in the magazine. Somehow you see this as connected to 
the, the mission, the orientation of first things. Do you see first things somewhat in uh, as having a role in the, the reclamation project? One of our founders, you know, uh, claims about politics is that culture is the basis of politics and religion is the foundation of culture. And his vision was never utopian. It was always one of uh, leaven that religious faith can leaven our participation in civic life and not usher in the kingdom of God, but rather to ameliorate some of the evils and maybe promote some modest goods. And so I think of First Things always as a ameliorist uh, magazine and not a we, we, we don't, we don't, we're not in Jeremiah's against the, 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 the insuperable corruption of America, nor are we, you know, woke utopians imagining that we can reshape things and, and prevent the possibility of injustice. So yes, I think the book fits in that tradition. Again, it's, it's quite, he's quite frank and honest about how debilitated we are as a as a as a country and it goes deep it's deep in our history but as i often comment to my friends everybody's got defective dna no one has perfect dna and uh the same is true for 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 nations and 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 national cultures uh, and i think hoyt strikes the perfect balance between clear sober analysis of the deep challenges that we face and the often debilitating flaws that are so much part of the American character. And at the same time, pointing towards uh, um, our, our, the real possibility that we could engage in this project of reclamation. One thing you note is that Hoyt has gratitude. He, he is, you use the word thankful. He is thankful for things. He, he never loses that gratitude. Do you, you, you want to keep, and, and often in your public squares, as in the, the first entry for this one, you want, you want to maintain there are always things to be thankful for. We cannot lose that, no matter how despairing the, the political scene, say, may, may appear. I think part of it is that if you work with your hands, then you have a, a sense of gratitude for reality. I mean, that's the primary metaphysical gratitude is it is better to be than to not be, that there's a gratitude for the created order, that there is something rather than nothing. And, and, I, you know, and I think that that's, uh, everything, even the most perverted things, if you will, shine with the gift of, of existence. And, and, and in that sense, I've learned from Augustine, St. Augustine long ago, that evil is the perversion of, of good. It, it has no independent existence. And so even in the sort of darkest situations, the evil can only pervert it. It cannot destroy the good. Um, and so there's always something to be grateful for. Rusty Reno, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mark. Talk to you next time. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, 
and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.